Yes, Buck fans, this is the podcast that takes you back through all the best games, moments, and players in the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is the BuckPower.com podcast. Now, here's the unofficial team historian and your host from BuckPower.com, it's Paul Stewart. The history of the Buccaneers has seen several false dawns. Seasons or stretches of games where it looked like the franchise was about to turn the corner only for the long-suffering Tampa Bay fans to have the ball snatched away by Lucy once more. 1989 was one of those seasons. Ray Perkins was in his third season and his young team had some impressive performances to open that year and none more so than the Week 5 game against the then mighty Chicago Bears. But from euphoria to despair... This game really summed up the two extreme feelings of being a fan of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Welcome to the BuckPower.com podcast. Plenty of time for Testaverde. And his pass is caught for the touchdown by Mark Carrier. Three tight ends for the Buccaneers. Wide open. Touchdown to one of those tight ends. William Harris. Tate. He'll score. Another touchdown for Lars Tate. And a high snap, Chris Moore, the punter, will run in for it. They'll get it. They can do no wrong. Fatigue has set in for the Bears, and the Bucks are a mile high. We featured Ray Perkins' first game as Buckingham coach in 1987 in Episode 2, but that season had ended 4-11, albeit interrupted by the players' strike in replacement football. His 1988 team went 5-11, but four of the wins came over Detroit and Green Bay, although there was still a lot of promise going into the third season. And Perkins had always said his team would win in the third season. Joining us on this podcast is one of the most recognisable names in Tampa sports writing, and he's the co-author of the book, Tales from the Bucks Sideline. Joey Johnston, welcome back to the Bucks podcast. Well, thank you, Paul. I'm a big fan and uh, very happy to be back with you. So by 1989, Ray Perkins' relationship with the press had become distinctly frosty and he's beginning to hear it from the Tampa fans too. This was his third season. He always said he was going to win. How did you think it was going for him in those ties? Well, the third season was a big one. Uh, Everybody was pointing to it. Uh, It was Vinny Testaverde's third season as an NFL quarterback. So clearly the time was, was right to take a big step forward and, and, and perhaps get into the playoffs. That's what, that was what everyone was expecting. Uh, and they had uh, Broderick Thomas as the first round pick, a linebacker from Nebraska. Interesting sidelight there was uh, the previous season. They went into the final game against the Detroit Lions, both with the same 4-11 and record. Uh, winner gets the sixth pick. Loser gets the third pick. It was a flip-flop. Bucks win. <laughs> to finish five and 11, uh, they get Broderick Thomas at six. The Detroit Lions get the consolation prize at three, a running back by the name of Barry Sanders. So we can only imagine how history changed based on that result. And nobody could imagine the torment that Barry Sanders would provide for the Bucks for a decade or more. But interestingly, the Bucks, uh, after doing a lot of losing, they won. And, and maybe in the long run, they lost because they lost Barry Sanders. It's quite funny, isn't it, how you get to the end of a season and fans always say, well, it might be a good idea if we lose this game to improve our draft position. This really was one example of, do you know what, the Bucks should have lost that game. Yeah, the his- history certainly says that. And, uh, 
you know, we knew Barry Sanders was a great college player. We had no idea that he would become the pro that, that he did, uh, all-time player, a Hall of Famer. And uh, Broderick Thomas uh, was, was a little bit less than that. So, yeah, the result of that flip-flopped in, in a bad way against the Bucks. So maybe that put a black cloud over the 89 season before we even knew it. Also joining us on this podcast is the starting right tackle of the Bucks from this game, someone who started nearly 100 games during his eight-year career in Tampa that followed on from three seasons in the USFL. Rob Taylor, thank you for joining us. Well, man, I've been looking forward to this. Thank you for the invitation, and I'm looking forward to just uh, having some discussion with you. One of the things I heard about was that you joined the Bucks after asking them for a tryout when you were on vacation in Clearwater. Is that true? Yeah, it very much is. Um, you know, the USFL was uh, a great opportunity, but then then the league folded and kind of got in some financial trouble. And so, um, you know, I, I lived in Pennsylvania at the time because I started out with the Philadelphia Eagles and I met my wife there. But we, but we would come down, I would come down with her parents to Clearwater uh, during the, uh, you know, during the winter just to have get, come to Florida. And so, when I, and I was kind of trying to say, okay, now that the league is folded, what am I going to do next and all that? And my father-in-law said, well, he read an article in the, uh, in the Tampa newspaper that said that the Bucks were in need of offensive linemen. And he said, well, hey, why don't you give them a call um, while you're here? You know, maybe they, maybe they can. I said, well, you know, that's not how it works. I mean, they got scouting departments. They got people who are, you just don't call them up and say, hey, can I play for your team? You know, and he said, so, but he kept on saying, well, what do you have to lose? So I actually called the you know, one buck place and got somebody on the switchboard and said, can I talk to a scout or whatever? And I said, I'm in town and I played in the USFL for three years, went to Northwestern. And this is my, you know, I was drafted by the Eagles, kind of give them a little of my background. They said, well, you know, on the way out of town, if you want to stop by, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll run you through some workouts. So I said, man, I'd love to. So my wife and we had a new baby at the time. So they waited in the car. I went in there and uh, did the 40-yard dash, shuttle runs, vertical jump, some bench press. And, uh, you know, they said, okay, well, hey, we got you down. Maybe we'll give you a call. And about two, uh, maybe a month or so later, uh, they said, well, you know, we have some, we have some roster positions open for, open for training camp. You know, it, it'd be kind of like training camp bait. I mean, we pretty much know who our starters and our people are going to be, but we just need to fill camp. Would you want to be interested? I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to come in. You know, any opportunity. So I signed a, a free agent contract and came in and uh, just so happened that during that, that training camp, the, some players got hurt and they had some injuries. And, and I think I was hungrier than I'd ever been too, you know, just with a, a new baby and my, you know, just kind of saying, I got, I got to make this happen this time. And uh, somehow I made the team. So my whole eight years of the Bucks to say, how are we going to beat out this guy who came here on vacation and asked for, a tryout and but uh you know they could they had a hard time finding the guy they finally did eight years later or nine years but anyway that's the story that's fantastic so by 1989 you're in your fourth season starting did you feel you were becoming really established on the team and in the nfl as a starting offensive lineman i think so i mean you know obviously we were struggling as a team i mean when 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 i made the team the first time lehman bennett was the head coach uh if you remember back then and steve young was a quarterback um, and then, uh, you know, Lehman Bennett was like, uh, I mean, if I could have played for him all my life, I'd still be playing because it was just kind of like, you know, it was, it was more of a country club atmosphere. But then <laughs> I, I think because he wasn't winning, they said, well, we're going to have to get somebody who comes in here and who's going to really discipline this team and get them, you know, in shape and all that. So they hired Ray Perkins, 
and it was a whole different environment. I mean, three a days and it's either my way or the highway. And I mean, Steve Young, basically, you know, he just, the, the first thing he did on a mini camp was he gave us all like, we had to meet a weight criteria. And so at the end of the camp, he said, okay, Rob Taylor, you're 330 now, you're going to be 285. You know, it's back in the day where they were looking for offensive line that were more in shape than these big guys now that they have. And Steve Young, you're at 210, you got to be 185. Well, he, I was a little bit like, coach, well, yeah, whatever you want. But Steve Young kind of was a strong-willed kind of guy. And, you know, he goes, coach, I'm not going to play at 185. He says, I mean, I basically he just kind of said, I've played at this weight for years and I've been pretty successful. You know what I'm saying? So uh, uh, it was, and, that, and that's where he established the fact, guys, you're going to either do it my way or you're going to do, you're going to be on the highway. And the next day he was traded to 49ers the next day. And so we got the message loud and clear. Now he was successful with the 49ers, Steve Young was. Um, but anyway, I just remember, you know, that's kind of the environment, um, you know, that, that when he took over, um, but so, you know, and, and the idea was that we were going to be out, we were going to play in Tampa where it was hot and humid and all that, but we were going to out condition every one of our opponents. It was good at the beginning of the season, but by the end of the season, we were just out of, out of gas, you know? So what else was happening in the world on the 8th of October, 1989? Radio 1 is... George Bush, the first one, was in the White House, and Margaret Thatcher was in her 11th year at 10 Downing Street, although ultimately to be her final year in office. Miss You Much by Janet Jackson was number one in the US Billboard charts, but finishing its six-week domination of the UK singles chart was the best dance track of the decade, right on time by Black Box. Forever Your Girl by Paula Abdul was topping the US album charts, whilst The Seeds of Love by Tears for Fears and the superb Wilds by Erasure were leading the way on this side of the Atlantic. Absolutely no bias showing there for my musical taste. The top shows in the USA were also big over here too. NBC had the Cosby Show and Cheers, whilst ABC was showing Roseanne. In the cinemas, you could go and see Black Rain starring Michael Douglas and Andy Garcia. The WWF, the wrestling version rather than the wildlife one, held its first event at the London Arena. But just as big a sporting event was taking place at Tampa Stadium. Over 72,000 were packed into the old sombrero, albeit not all of them sporting orange or supporting the Buccaneers. There were an incredible number of Bear fans at this game because it always seemed in the late 80s that the NFL Division teams regarded as the Tampa game as an excuse to come and completely invade the stadium and just outnumber the Buck fans. And this was another example of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when they put the Bucks in the NFC Central in the, in the second year and then moving forward permanently, uh, the thinking was that for Green Bay, Detroit, uh, uh, Chicago, Minnesota, this was a warm weather site, uh, you know, a uh, little diversity to the division. And, uh, you know, all those teams and fans loved coming to Tampa Bay for a lot of reasons, uh, one of which was it was usually a win, uh, but also a great spot for visiting fans to come down. And particularly when the Chicago Bears, the Green Bay Packers got very popular and successful, uh, not only did the fans come, come down, they took over the stadium. And that was really pretty commonplace for the Chicago Bears in the 80s. The Bears were at the absolute high point of the franchise, of course, winning the Super Bowl in 85, doing the Super Bowl shuffle, 
having uh, players that were widely recognized beyond uh, football by, by people who liked entertainment and celebrity. You had Jim McMahon and Walter Payton and Refrigerator Perry. So this uh, Bears team was not just an NFL team. It was, it was sort of the NFL version of the Beatles in a way. They were being stalked and followed by, by not only NFL media, but by uh, popular entertainment media. So um, it, was, it was quite a sight to behold. And the thing is that as they came into that 89 game, the Bucks against the Bears, the Bucks had dropped 12 straight games against the Bears, which is very difficult to do in the NFL. That's, that's uh, six straight seasons of two losses against the Bears each time. So the, the Bucks had not beaten the Bears in, a, in quite a long time, and it really didn't look like this was going to be the kind of game where they would start a new, new winning streak at all. I mean, I remember the previous game in 1988. It's my first ever live NFL game. But when the Bears came to London in 1986, they played in the first preseason game ever held in London. They played the Dallas Cowboys. And they really were larger than life. They were seen as these huge, you know, media celebrities. And I remember we had Walter Payton on a very famous British sports quiz show because I set the questions they were going to ask him. Um, in that and yeah I mean Jim McMahon was there William Perry was there and it was they were a huge media hype yeah huge and it was always a, a huge um, a huge uh, highlight for the Bears to come down uh, to Tampa it was it was the, the game of the year for sure the Bucks came close a couple of times uh, during that streak but but the Bears certainly had had their number and uh, you know the Bears were not able to duplicate that Super Bowl victory but they were in the NFC Championship game or the playoffs most of those years. And this was another very powerful uh, Bears team that had its sights on the Super Bowl when they came down uh, to Tampa. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Vinny Testaverde now have the supporting cast missing in years past. Youth, enthusiasm, and confidence have returned winning football to Tampa Bay. Tampa is back and ready to show the Bears that the Bucs won't stop here. Tampa Stadium is sold out with Buccaneer and Bear fans this afternoon on a beautiful day as the Chicago Bears, undefeated at 4-0, take on the much-improved Tampa Bay Buccaneers. A gorgeous day indeed. Temperature 85 degrees. It is humid at 67%. The wind is gusting, and the forecast has 30% chance of rain before this day is over. Calling the game for CBS were Dick Stockton and Dan Fouts. No one has called more Buccaneer games in the history than Stockton, and his 40-plus years on play-by-play -play duty have seen him describing the Bucks on no less than 88 occasions. Fouts was his partner in 1989, and of course was the Hall of Fame former quarterback of the San Diego Chargers. The Buccaneer starters on the offensive line, Paul Gruber, Mike Simmons, Randy Grimes, John Bruin, and of course Rob Taylor. William Harris started at tight end as the Bucks opened in a blocking formation, although Ron Hall saw most of the action. The receivers, Bruce Hill and Mark Carrier. In the backfield, William Howard and Lars Tate, behind Vinnie Testaverde. On defence, the Bucks played a 3-4 in 89. Reuben Davis, Sean Lee and Robert Goff up front. The linebackers, Kevin Murphy, Eugene Marv, Irving Randall and Winston Moss. And then Ricky Reynolds and Rod Jones at corner, with Mark Robinson and Harry Hamilton at safety. The Bucks quickly forced a three and out, and Vinnie Testaverde led to the Buccaneer offence on the field for the first time at their own 47-yard line. Six plays later, they were poised to score. First and ten on the ten, they can get a first down without scoring. Plenty of time for Testaverde. 
And his pass is caught for the touchdown by Mark Carrier. It was intended for Lars Tate, deflected off of Tate, and a touchdown for Tampa Bay. So Mark Carrier, prior to Mike Evans, the best receiver in Buccaneer history? Well, you could make that argument. I think there's probably a few others that, uh, that should be on the list, but, but Mark Carrier uh, on, on a team that did not fare very well, his statistics in 89 were absolutely amazing. Almost uh, hitting the 1,500-yard mark, uh, 89 receptions. Uh, granted, uh, some of that was, was in garbage time or some of it was, was in a lost cause. But again, for a, for a, a third-round pick, uh, Mark Carrier turned out to be uh, one heck of a one heck of a deal in the NFL, and this was really the season that showed people that he could be not only a um, uh, a nice stopgap player in the NFL, he could be a guy you could build an offense around. So he was absolutely fabulous. Uh, certainly the the best offensive player on on this year's Buccaneers team back in '89. Mike Tomczak was starting at quarterback for the Bears as longtime starter Jim McMahon had been traded to San Diego. His next drive also went nowhere and the Bucks were soon back in business offensively. Vinny Testaverde hit Bruce Hill for a 41-yard gain and then scrambled 12 yards on third down to set the Bucks up at the one-yard line. It is first and goal and the Bucks will go with three tight ends. Jackie Walker, Harris and Ron Hall. And the first back through and he may not have made it is William Howard. The fullback, and now he said he crossed the plane, and it's a touchdown for Tampa Bay. Howard lined up at fullback and took the quick handoff with the Bear defense keying on the tailback Lars Tate, who was well known for his ability to dive over the top on goal line plays. Donald Ego Buike added the extra point, and the Bucks were up 14 0. Three plays later, the defense got the ball back once more. Six defensive backs for Tampa Bay. Tom Zack has McKinnon. Fumble. Tampa Bay recovers the McKinnon fumble. Harry Hamilton made the recovery. The late Bobby Futrell delivered a crushing hit on Dennis McKinnon and Hamilton recovered. Testaverde quickly hit Mark Carrier for 30-yard gain. Sorry, Mark Carrier bailed out his quarterback on a terribly underthrown ball and the Bucks had first and goal at the one-yard line once more. Now, the Bucks had never scored 21 points in the first quarter in their history at this point, and unfortunately, they still hadn't when this quarter ended. Four straight runs by Tate and Howard into the middle of the line were stopped, and the Bucks turned the ball over on downs. A pair of future NFL head coaches were involved in these tackles, Mike Singletary and Ron Rivera, both playing linebacker for the Bears in this game. The Bears, of course, had some very famous defensive linemen and some very good ones. Richie Dent, Steve McMichael. You've got the likes of Mike Singletary and Ron Rivera, linebacker. Were they one of the toughest opponents you ever had to play against? I would say as a team, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, they, I mean, when you, you got Dan Hampton, Steve McMichael, William Perry, all those inside defensive tackles. And then with the Richard Dent, I mean, Trace Armstrong, I mean, he, was a, he wasn't the pass rusher that Richard Dent was, but he was consistent and strong. I mean, you know, they were the monsters the midway. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's who they were. They were, they, they, they were back then, they were just, uh, uh, you know, Singletary, the quarterback of that defense. Um, they were feared. I mean, I think any team that went against them, it, it was, it was a, a huge challenge. But Tom Zach did not take long to hand the ball back to the Buccaneers. Len Kozlowski is a fourth wide receiver for Chicago. And a fake, Tomzak, in trouble. 
fires it away and let's see if there's an interception there is mark robinson picks it off for tampa bay the bucks had three quarters of an excellent secondary in 1989 Ricky Reynolds was at one corner and the veteran pair of Harry Hamilton and Mark Robinson at safety. We will not mention Rod Toast Jones in this conversation. Hamilton was a former Jets draft pick who arrived as a free agent in 1988 whilst Robinson came in a trade with the Chiefs. For three seasons they formed one of the best safety combinations in Bucks history. Now it took the Bucks only four players to score again, but veteran James Wilder converted a third down to give the offense yet another first and goal. Three tight ends for the Buccaneers. Wide open, touchdown to one of those tight ends, William Harris. William Harris only played one season for the Bucks and had just 11 receptions, this being his only touchdown. He beat Ron Rivera for the score as the future Carolina and Washington head coach bit badly on the play fake. Riverboat Ron came out badly on this one. The Bucks were now leading 21-0, but it was not really down to the play of their third-year quarterback. Now, Vinny Testaverde, he'd thrown 35 interceptions the previous season, but he was established as the Buccaneers starter. But in this game, he looked terrible in terms of his mechanics. Do you think he developed properly under Ray Perkins? Was Vinny Testaverde a good quarterback? I'll, I'll answer that first by saying that he was, he was certainly a a very, very good quarterback uh, after he left the Bucs. Uh, he put up numbers that were outstanding, and, and you see his name on the all-time list for the NFL in several categories. He, he had a, a, a wonderfully long career, but his first few years, no. He was not a good quarterback, and he was not justified as being the number one overall pick. As, as history has taught us, that he and Ray Perkins were just not a good fit at all. They uh, had sort of a healthy disdain for each other, and uh, Perkins was very disappointed in, in, in Vinny's work ethic and, and the way he, uh, he approached the game. Uh, Vinny uh, had to be handled a certain way. He did not respond well to the Ray Perkins style of coaching. So he almost kind of uh, balled up into a shell after a while. And, and that led in later years to the acquisition of Chris Chandler and a bit of a quarterback controversy. So Vinny certainly didn't, didn't, uh, didn't blossom until well after the Ray Perkins era. Uh, you know, whatever the Bucks did well that 89 season, it was, it was despite, you know, whatever coaching or, or, or training he was giving to Vinny. Uh, it, was, it was everyone around Vinny, really. Because I remember there was a situation the previous year, okay, in 1988, where Vinny allegedly injured himself in the shower and they started veteran Joe Ferguson. And you always could tell that wasn't true. There was something going on behind the scenes. There was always, there always seemed to be something going on behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, the funny thing was, I remember, I think it was uh, the next year in 1990 when uh, we were coming to the end of the Ray Perkins era and, uh, and he and Vinny, you know, could hardly uh, stand each other. Vinny went up to play in a, in a golf tournament in Jacksonville and gave an interview about how much he disliked the coaching and, and, and Ray Perkins, you know, the person wrote it up and it got on the AP wire and, and we saw it and we it put it on the front page of the Tampa Tribune. And Vinny was aghast that how, how they know about that. I was in Jacksonville. I mean, he had, he had no concept that what he said in Jacksonville could one day come in, come back in Tampa and, and come back the next day. In fact, what was, what was it like playing with Vinny? How was he with the offensive line? Uh, 
you know, Vinny, uh, number one, as, as we all know, that's why he was drafted first round, was, was, was one of the best athletes at quarterback than anybody that I'd ever played with. I mean, he could play not only football, but he was a great golfer. He was great. Everything he did, he was great. Um, the, the problem with Vinny many times is, um, like, for instance, a Tom Brady, if we, we just kind of look, you know, Tom Brady is so smart. I mean, I'm not saying Vinny's not, but his preparation you know, I always, I've heard a saying one time that, you know, you don't, it's not the will to win that counts. It's the will to prepare to win. And I would say Vinny kind of struck, he, he, I think he was so used to winning with just talent that he didn't really understand the preparation that it took to win in the NFL. And so I think that was a kind of a, 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 a you know, maturity that had to take place in him. And, uh, you know, they always said he was colorblind. I don't know if that, that had anything to do with, with throwing the interceptions and things like that. But, uh, I'll tell you what, Vinny's a great guy, great character. I mean, you know, everybody loved Vinny Testaverde, but uh, he just had a, he had a trouble getting on, uh, you know, kind of getting on track there early in his career. Do you think it had got to the point in 1989 and then perhaps the year after that Vinny was expecting something bad to happen, interception or a turnover, and it was just inevitable he was going to need a change of scenery? Could you begin to sense that was the case? Yeah, I, I do think he kind of lost his confidence, you know, in, in some ways. And, and, and uh, I mean, you know, he, he, he had had so much success over the years. And, uh, you know, and, and again, the other thing, too, is with that, we, we had so much changeover. You know, when you, when you look at the Bears, for instance, those guys playing on that defensive line and Mike, they were there for year after year after year. I mean, they were a, a, they were a unit. I mean, they were like a family unit. And we had guys just kind of coming in and out, in and out, in and out. And even even some way on some ways on the offensive line, and I think that was a struggle for Vinny too. Um, it's just you know we we just didn't have that that uh, veteran leadership that the Bears had. Vinny now threw an awful pass over the middle that was picked off by linebacker Jim Morrissey, and Neil Anderson soon put the Bears on the board with a five-yard touchdown run. But the Buccaneer defense was still determined to keep themselves in the forefront of the highlights. Ruben Davis makes the recovery and the third Chicago turnover of this game. Kevin Murphy recorded the sack and run-stuffing defensive end Ruben Davis was the one running off the field with the ball, not running 80 yards down the field with the entire defence to show off in front of a camera in 1989, thankfully. Testaverde then had two passes that should have been picked off before he found the end zone once again. Second down, the pass. Drill, touchdown, Bruce Hill, 22 yards, and the Buccaneers score again. Bruce Hill was the other half of the receiving duo the Bucks had in the late 80s and was coming off a 1,000-yard season in 1988. The Bucks now led 28-7 with just over four minutes left in the first half. How complicated was the playbook in those days? You know, I, I, I remember it to be very complicated in some ways. I mean, you know, you go through training camp and, and they put all these plays in, passing, running plays. You're, you know, you're not going to use them all in every game. And then when you come to the game, they actually have a game plan. Okay, these are the ones we're actually going to run. But uh, And the defenses, I mean, the, the Bears, the, the, the defenses they ran, obviously, to confuse uh, the quarterback with blitzing and all that stuff. So. Uh, and that's where I, I think Vinny struggled is just that they would confuse him and, and uh, he didn't know how to adjust. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I think with time, he, he, he finally got it down. 
Walter Payton had long since retired and the Chicago running attack was firmly in the hands of former Gator Neil Anderson, although veteran Matsui was still on the roster. Anderson scored his second touchdown of the game with 1.55 remaining. The Bucks went in at half-time, leading 28-14, the most points they'd ever scored in the first half at Tampa Stadium. The Bears narrowed the gap to seven on the opening drive of the second half, but the Tampa defense still came up with big plays, forcing Chicago punts. Not a good pass from center. And Tomzak is caught. Winston Moss. Winston Moss went on to a 20-year coaching career, including being assistant head coach of the Packers. He even coached in the XFL in 2020. Did you have much to do with him during his time with the Bucks? I did. I have a lot of fun memories of, of Winston Moss. Uh, we didn't get on uh, great in the beginning. Uh, my first real tangible memory of Winston was writing something he didn't particularly care for and seeing him in the locker room and he put me in a headlock. And... Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I didn't feel life-threatened or anything, and and that's uh, the kind of thing these days you might, uh, you know, file an assault charge or something. But you know, we 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 uh, we made our uh, we mended the fences and and got together on it later. And actually, he became a guy that I would talk to quite often. He would he would he would just want to chat about whether it was his status on the team or the coaching, and and I would see him later when he was the coach uh, around the league. And and uh, I have I have very fond memories of Winston. Uh, remember him at University of Miami as well, great college player and uh, very highly regarded assistant coach. Uh, I thought he might have gotten a shot as a head coach at somewhere along the line, but somewhere, I guess it came off the tracks, but uh, maybe we'll see that in the future. But yeah, Winston Moss was, uh, after the headlock, learned that he was a pretty good guy. But Testaverde continued to misfire, giving chances to defensive backs and linebackers alike, until from the Bear 26, he was picked off for a second time by Jim Morrissey. This one was probably the hardest chance of all, as the Bear linebacker dived in front of William Harris to record the interception. He only had two interceptions all year, but both of them came in this game. But as the game moved into the fourth quarter, the Tampa Bay offense rediscovered its mojo and put the game out of reach. Third down and eight for the Buccaneers on the 41 of the Bears. Testaverde up the middle has Carrier. Mark Carrier gets inside the 20. A gain of 25. First down Tampa Bay. Sean Gale finally caught up with him. Sean Gale now works for the British TV station that I used to and was telling me only a couple of years ago that he remembers Mark Carrier as being one of the toughest receivers he ever tried to cover. Lars Tate with blocking. He'll go in. Touchdown, Tampa Bay. 16-yard touchdown by Lars Tate. Let's give Ray Perkins some credit for play calling. The Bears were in a blitz here, so he goes with the run to the outside and lets his talented tailback get in for the touchdown. The Buccaneer backfield featured a pair of 1988 draft picks, Lars Tate and William Howard, and they also, of course, had the veteran James Wilder seeing some action. Was that backfield talented or overrated? I think serviceable might be the the, the best word. Uh, James Wilder had had a ton of carries by then. He was uh, pretty banged up, and he was used very sparingly. He was very talented out of the backfield, uh, did probably most of his best work in the 89 season uh, as a receiver. Lars Tate was a, was a pretty good player for a third-round pick, and William Howard the same for, for a mid-round pick. They gave the Bucks a couple of good seasons, but by no means was this a, a star-studded backfield. 
Uh, Lars Tate had his moments, but he was never going to be the guy that, that was going to be the prime time uh, carrier. He was just, a, you know, sort of an average serviceable NFL player who had a few moments. And, and as it turned out, one of his best moments was this game against the Bears. I think it's quite ironic. By the time you get to 1990, both Tate and Howard have been released and they were going with former bandit Gary Anderson and draft pick Reggie Cobb in the backfield. Yeah, and that was that actually, uh, as far as talent, that may be one of the most talented groups of backs the Bucks had. Gary Anderson uh, was a human highlight film when he got the ball in space. And Reggie Cobb was, uh, you know, troubled at Tennessee with substance abuse and whatnot. But he certainly had his moments as well. Again, a, a backfield that maybe didn't didn't quite click all the way uh, and, and fill, fulfill its potential. But in spots, if you line those guys up and looked at their physical skills, Cobb and Anderson were, were pretty darn talented and, and uh, showed their moments, just not enough of them. 35-21 Tampa Bay, and then a lovely moment for Buccaneer fans on the ensuing kick return. Dennis Gentry on the return. Go, 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 go. And clobbered at the 40-yard line by James Wilder. Wilder was at the very end of his Buccaneer career by this point and was only used sparingly as a receiving back by Ray Perkins, but to see him on the coverage teams and delivering a hit like this was truly amazing. How many other NFL backs in his situation would have even been on the field? We will definitely be doing a game at some point in the future in this series where we pay real tribute to the best running back in Buccaneer history. Lars Tate then broke loose on a 48-yard run, the longest of his NFL career, and this took him over the 100-yard mark on the day. But a third-down completion from Testaverde to Bruce Hill would have serious repercussions, as the Bucks QB was hit late by Steve McMichael. It drew a flag, but Testaverde had to limp off the field with an ankle injury. Veteran backup Joe Ferguson came into the game, and he only had to hand the ball off twice. Double tight end on second down and goal. Tate. He'll score. Another touchdown for Lars Tate. This is Lars Tate going to take it to the outside again against the Bears defense. And he just outraces everybody to the corner of the end zone. Fatigue has set in for the Bears and the Bucks are a mile high. Even the extra point proved pretty memorable. Donald Igwe for the point after. And a high snap, Chris Moore, the punter, will run in for it. They'll get it. They can do no wrong. Chris Moore, the punter, took the high snap and outraced the defenders into the right corner of the end zone for what in 1989 was only worth one point. He therefore became the fourth buck to record just a single point in their careers, the others being Dave Warnke, Giorgiano and Ray Criswell. Moore only punted the 1989 season for the Bucks, but after a good 91 season with the Montreal Machine of the original World League, he had another 14 years in the NFL with both Buffalo and Atlanta. Ditka seemingly always had Mike Tomjak in his doghouse, and he relegated his starters to sit with the pooches on the sideline for the final seven minutes of the game. Future NFL and Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh took over and led a pair of scoring drives that gave the final score a sense of respectability it perhaps did not deserve. Mark Carrier recovered an onside kick with 49 seconds remaining and Ferguson led the Bucks into the victory formation to seal the 42-35 victory. What does this game mean for the Buccaneers in your view? Well, against the 49ers they wanted to see if, how far they measured up and whether they were uh, a legitimate team this year. Well, all doubts have to be erased about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. 
The only question is how bad is Testaverde hurt? Can he play next week? When will he be back in the lineup? They opened up the offense, and it worked. They have reason to celebrate. Gary Hughes has been a Bucks fan for nearly 40 years, living here in the UK, and he was at this game. Gary, what was the atmosphere like in the stands? Paul, it was fantastic, mate. It really was great. I'd been there from, from hours before kickoff, partying outside. And then, of course, once we got inside, the, the it was fantastic. Loved every second of it. Even, um, even when it got a bit close at times, I just loved every second of it. And, of course... Towards the end, when uh, when when we knew we'd we'd, we'd got it, I, I was just, I was ready to turn cartwheels. It was fantastic, mate. And then the very next night, you were at a Clearwater Bucks bunch meeting, which had quite a memorable introduction. Yeah, it was fantastic. That um, as uh, as we walked in the door, um, I came with. Um, don't know whether you've uh, mentioned Bob Timoney before. Fantastic guy. Um, he uh, he showed us into the place and uh, and says um, you must stop and wipe your feet here. And I thought, wipe my feet, it's not been raining. Um, and then, of course, uh, now just the uh, big bears flag that they put on the floor just inside the door. So, of course, it was, uh, it was compulsory to, uh, to wipe your feet all over it. So it was in a bit of a state by the end of the night. Now, you've had a long-standing dislike of bears kicker Kevin Butler. How did that originate? <laughs> I actually remember I, I was in Tampa on, on, uh, on, on a vacation at the time. And... Um, I can't remember whether it was a newspaper article or uh, something I heard on the radio, but he was, I won't go as far as saying insulting about the Buccaneers, but he, he wasn't very, um, very forthcoming with compliments, let's put it that way. It was more about the content of it just really annoyed me. And I just took an instant dislike to the guy and I actively cheer when he, he missed field goals and anything. Whoever he was playing against, it didn't matter to me um, as long as... Uh, I actually didn't have a dislike of the Bears at the time. I had a real dislike of Kevin Butler. And that hasn't really waned over the years, it has to be said. In a truly unique announcement, the entire Buccaneer offence was named NFC Offensive Player of the Week. The Bucks were now 3-2 and two, and the sense of turning the corner was evident in the post-game press conferences, the media reports and the view of the national pundits over the next few days. And also joining us on this podcast, he's the executive producer of the whole network, TJ Reeves. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't know about that. You're giving me far too much credit. I'm loving listening to, to Rob Taylor and I've known Rob for a long time post playing career. I remember being in the stands over and over again in the 80s and the early 90s, watching a lot of unfortunately bad Buccaneer football. But bringing it back to this game, this was one of those games where you guys look like world beaters. You guys put 42 points on the Chicago Bears on a day where Mark Carrier and Bruce Hill both caught for over 100 yards in the game. Lars Tate ran for over 100 yards in the game in two scores. The highlights that are on buckpower.com show some guy wearing number 72 in white, bulldozing Richard Dent and the fridge and a couple of others as Lars Tate is running in the end zone for touchdowns. Uh, that was some day. And again, the NFC Offensive Player of the Week is kind of a prestigious thing every week. They gave it to the entire Buck offense. Rob Taylor said, Paul, before he came on the podcast, are we going to talk about the offensive line blocking? I said back, how do you not talk about the line blocking when you scored 42 points and had 200-yard receivers and 100-yard back? That's all because of the offensive line, brother. It has to be. 
Yeah, I asked that question because when running backs and receivers and quarterbacks have great days, it's all about them. When running backs and receivers and quarterbacks have bad days, it's always about the offensive line, about how bad they are. You know, so I was going to say, hey, look, I mean, against the Chicago Bears, if we had that kind, of, those kind of stats, we there had to be an offensive line that was doing the job. And and I, I was actually watching some of those film that you had too, and saying, wow, he, Vinny Testaverde had all day to throw the ball. You know. And so that was kind of interesting to see. I was even showing my son who plays football now. I said, look at look at how much time he had, you know. So one thing about the backdrop of this, Rob, is I'm not revealing a nuclear secret here, as I like to say. The Bears had owned the Buccaneers in the 80s. They had won 12 times in a row leading into this game, October of 89. How much more satisfying was it that you were doing this to a nemesis, a big brother, a bully, whatever you want to call the Chicago Bears, you were you were having this great day, but it was against them in that circumstance. Oh, I mean, you know, if if any team, I mean, obviously the teams that we played twice a year, like the Bears, the Vikings, the Lions, you know, those are the teams that we were really. But the, if any team that we could, to you know, and and to do it at home, it would be the Chicago Bears. And uh, I, as you as I was kind of reminiscing watching that, did you? I mean, th- that that place was packed. I mean, that yep. place was, you know, we didn't have a lot of sold out games back then, but that place was, was, was full. Now, the thing of it is, is if you had to really be honest about if the, the fans and the get, they probably had either bears jerseys and bucks jerseys. And what happens is if the bears get ahead, they put their, keep their bears jerseys on. But if we go ahead, all of a sudden they become bucks fans, you know what I'm saying? But it was like a buccaneer day that day. I mean, it was orange and white and it was, uh, it was exciting. The atmosphere was unbelievable. And I think what really helped us is because we did start fast. Uh, because if we would have you know, got behind early, it would have been kind of another one of those Bears. It's almost like Bears home stadium in Tampa. But because we started fast and we got that momentum going. And the other thing that always helps us, I think it was still pretty hot at that time. You know, I don't know, it was you know, close to 90 degrees. And uh, we were, you know, we did have a, a conditioning edge on most teams when we played in Tampa. And I, I think uh, as good as Singletary and all those guys are, I think they started to wear down and we were still going strong. Um, you know, I think too, as it was Ray Perkins third year, I start, I think we were starting to, to gel, you know, and come together. And uh, I think like uh, things just began to work out in that game. And man, that was exciting to beat the bears like that. Phenomenal. In terms of this game, you guys, a lot of the time were just lining up, and running right at him, running the pitch play right at him. William Howard out in front of Lars Tate. William Howard out in front of James Wilder. When you go back and reminisce, how much more impressive was that, that you're lining up on the Bears, and the Bears might have even known it was coming, but you still were running on them throughout that game. What, what do you remember about that, if anything? I mean, I think that's offensive linemen. I mean, we love to run the football. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And, and once you have success, I mean, success on a running play is four yards. I mean, if we get four yards, that's a successful running play. But if you get four or more, I mean, it's, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, you come back to that, that, that huddle and say, run it again, <laughs> run it again. I mean, and the unit just starts to, to gel and, and, and you can see that defense just like, what are we going to do to stop this? You know? And so I would just say that, yeah. And, and I think that's why we, we really got some momentum running the ball, which opens up the passing game, by the way. I mean, when you got to when you got to start stacking the box, the tackle box to say we're going to we got to stop the run. All of a sudden, the receivers are out there, you know, uh, with not near near the coverage as they would normally have. But, yeah, it's a it's it's great for an offensive lineman when we can get gain that momentum, just pounding the ball, you know, over and over again. 
Are you still in touch with many of your former teammates from uh, from '89, Rob? I uh, yeah, I, I see a lot of them. Like I said, I just saw Paul Gruber. He's kind of a, a close friend of mine. Um, you know, I saw Randy Grimes. Um, you know, I don't see like George Yarno and Rick Mallory and some of them as much. Um, you know, and then some of the other players that like Ian Beckles that came in afterwards, they weren't there. I don't think then, but Tony Mayberry's around. Um, so, you know, the offensive linemen kind of stay close. And what are you doing now in 2021? Uh, great question. I'm actually a pastor of a church uh, in, in Lutz, Florida called Idlewild Baptist Church. Uh, and I'm over our men's ministry. So what I like to do is just help men understand uh, how to grow in character, you know, from, you know, from a Bible standpoint. And, uh, you know, I also teach people how to uh, financial planning, because to be honest with you, I, you know, I learned a lot in that area too, as far as uh, just how to manage money. And, and from a, I call it from a biblical perspective also. So that's kind of what I do now. I love what I do. Um, but I mean, I'm a season ticket holder for the Buccaneers. Uh, so we go to, we, we went to LA and watched them get beat by the Rams. We we're a little disappointed, but um, so I, I still am a huge Bucks fan. His son, Kyle is a high school football player right now, middle school, high school. And Rob, tell him who he's playing with, where he's playing and who he's playing with. Cause it all connects back to the Buccaneer alumni. Go ahead, Rob. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. C Cambridge Christian school is where he plays. And the head coach is George Johnson who was a defensive lineman yep. for the Bucks, of course, way after I was there. Uh, and he's a great guy, just a great, you know, he's, and he's, and he still looks like he could play. Uh, we have some other, uh, a guy named Kelvin Kenny. I don't think he played for the Bucks, but he played in the mm -hmm. NFL. We, we had, we have some other players there, but yeah, George Johnson's doing a great job. We, he, it was his first year. So it was kind of a, a building year, but uh, I look forward to great things in the future. And by the way, Martin Gramatica's son, oh, yeah. Nico, is the kicker. So a Gramatica is there with a tailor. We're, we're molding all on the BuckPower.com yeah. podcast, Paul Stewart. We're molding all things. We got Rob Taylor's son and Martin Gramatica's son on the team at Cambridge Christian School. Pretty cool. On the, and uh, Martin the is actually out there. Yeah, he's out there on the field helping Gaston and, and Nico with their kicking I'll tell you, he's doing a great job with them. And those those two young men are just great, great young men. He's done a great job parenting them. Rob, it's been absolutely fantastic you having on the podcast. Thank you so much for being part of this. Yeah, I'm grateful, man. I, I it's, it's great to reminisce. And uh, hey, offensive, the whole offense being the player of the game back in 1989, yep. that, that's a great memory. And then it all went wrong. The Bucks would lose to Detroit the following week on a fourth down scramble by Rodney Pete with 29 seconds left, a game that Testaverde missed due to his ankle injury. They then gave up 29 unanswered points in a loss in Washington, a staggering 56 points in Cincinnati, and then consecutive home losses to Cleveland and Minnesota. 3-2 and two had become 3-7, and seven, and the Buck fans put away their playoff hopes and dug out their paper bags to put back on their heads once more. The yep. week after this game, the Bucks lost 17-16 to the Lions on a last-minute touchdown, and all the momentum fell away. Do you think the Bucks had overachieved to be three and two and win this game, or was you know reality setting in the future in future weeks? Well, history shows us that reality has setting set in because they finished five and eleven, so they they never really got their foothold on this season. But I tell you, at the time, after beating the Bears, I really thought the Bucks might be on their way. They had played earlier a few weeks uh, into the season. The, the 49ers came to Tampa, and the 49ers were coming off uh, the Super Bowl. They were at the height of their power with Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and Roger Craig, and the Bucks had that game won. 
they had that game won and it got away in the last minute and the Niners won 20 to 16. Uh, still, the Bucks were go, went on to win some games, including the, the Bears, and we're, we're sitting at three and two with, with the Lions coming in. To me, this is one of the great, exhilarating, disappointing swings in Bucks history in two games to, have a, to finally beat the Bears after 12 straight losses and to have a home game against the Lions, a very winnable game, and to let that slip away. That's a massive opportunity. And really, when you look at it, uh, I think that might be the, the moment that Ray Perkins lost things and, and ultimately cost him his job because they were on their way to, to getting a foothold on a playoff berth. It, it vanished with that Lions game, complete disappointment and mirage, similar to the Cowboys the next year in 1990, where I remember thinking just what a, what a massively disappointing result. They couldn't beat the Lions at home. The Bucs actually beat the Bears later in the season to complete the sweep. And it actually led to one of the great trivia moments in team history because the following year there was a story on LA Law where the Bears were being sued for not producing a playoff team and Mike Ditko had a cameo on the show. And one of the lines used was, they couldn't have been a playoff team. They even lost to Tampa Bay twice. <laughs> yeah. That's about right. I mean, if you lost to Tampa Bay twice back in those days, you had a problem. Uh, but, the, but the, you know, again, a five, uh, just think of it, a five-win team, but two of the wins were against the Chicago Bears. So um, almost criminal, they couldn't build upon that uh, for that season. And, and the, the, the other interesting thing about that 89 season is um, they, uh, I think they were five and seven, still in it still in it, barely, if they won out. And they played the Packers at home with Don Mikowski and had a horrible call against Sean Lee late in the game. Anyway, it led to the Packers uh, setting up with and, and grounding the ball with one second to go and knocking in a field goal to win it uh, on a walk-off. Another just massively disappointing moment. They were holding on by a thread, but even then they, they couldn't get it done. I can't remember the specifics of the call against Sean Lee. It might've been a defensive holding or something like that. I know it was on fourth and 10 when it happened. Yeah, right, right. And uh, I do remember Tom McEwen looked this up. The, uh, the official that made the call was a, um, a graduate of Marquette University, which is in uh, Wisconsin. <laughs> he he uh, felt the need to, to find that out and point it out. But I, I and I, another thing I remember was, uh, uh, my assignment for the Tribune that day was Sean Lee, which was a, not, a, not a great one. But uh, I remember he was in tears and trying to talk to him and, and his teammates trying to shield me from, from him. So a very tense, tense locker room scene there. Um, but in any event, that was, that was sort of the last straw for, for what became another 5-11 and 11 season. But he didn't put you in a headlock. He didn't. He was too distraught. <laughs> Winston might have. Winston was was scullying around the locker room somewhere. Had he been close, he might have done it again. The following clip is courtesy of NBC Television and aired during the fifth season of LA Law in 1990. Coach Mike Ditka also had a cameo appearance when he was called as a witness for the defence. You're not just suing for your money back, are you, Mr. Lewis? You're also claiming emotional distress. They lost to Tampa Bay. Twice. Joey, it's been fantastic having you on the show again. Where can people read more of your work? Well, you can look at joeyjohnstoncommunications.com or I do a good bit of writing for University of South Florida Athletics, uh, gousfbulls.com. 
write, write about football, basketball, and other sports. And uh, other than that, various periodicals, occasionally in the Tampa Bay Times, uh, all over the place, sort of like you, a man of uh, many versatile talents. Joey, thank you again. Thank you, Paul. And there we have the story of the 1989 home win over the Bears. Real euphoria on the day for Buccaneer fans, only for it to be dashed over the following weeks. My thanks to all the people who have been part of this podcast. Joey Johnston, TJ Reeves, Rob Taylor and Gary Hughes. And my thanks of course to Al Needham for being the guiding light that led to this podcast getting off the ground. I will see many of you Buccaneer fans at the Monday night game against the Giants when I fly back across the Atlantic to Tampa for the first time in a long time. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you subscribe to it and let other Buccaneer fans know about it. Because we know